satisfaction. Refuge of the Incompetent. I'm Gall. I'm Moses. And I'm joined by, yes, Moses. Hey. Hi, I'm Ted. Hi, Ted. And, and um, this is our third show, and we're really excited about it because we also have a special guest with us um, a young woman by the name of Marissa, who is a friend of mine um, here in Philadelphia. And uh, do you want to say hi, Marissa? Hey, I'm Marissa. Yeah. <laughs> and you'll learn a little bit more about her later, but um, anybody want to tell us what the theme for today's show is? Uh, we're talking about a warm earth, aka global warming, aka climate change, aka climate fiction, aka all that stuff. Yay! <laughs> it's going to be a totally optimistic episode. <laughs> <laughs> um, no doom and gloom here. Um, yeah. we, uh, we settled on, there's a lot of climate change fiction out there, um, especially in the speculative fiction arena, but we settled on, on two books. Um, the first of which is The Drowned World, which was written in 1962 by J.G. Ballard. And then we also all collectively read... I mean, some, I think some of you have read the entire series, but um, of the first book in the Broken Earth uh, trilogy, the fifth season by N.K. Jemisin. And um, we're- Which is we... a more recent book than The Drowned Worlds. Yes, yes, thank you, 2015, yeah. Um, so we'll probably start with uh, The Drowned Worlds and uh, we'll, we definitely will talk, there's so much really weird post-apocalyptic uh, films for us to talk about as well. Um, we'll definitely talk a little bit about Waterworld at some point. Yeah, Can't what, get away yes. from that one. No, <laughs> no. Um, but uh, let's uh, maybe talk about the music that we're going to play for this episode just to get it out of the way and then uh, dive in. <laughs> so uh, we don't, so, listeners might have caught on that this is pre-recorded and we we don't always play all the music that we talk about um, because we do the audio and then um, and then it's edited in. But some of the stuff that you might hear um, uh, is what we're talking about now. <laughs> so I I had a few like routes that I was going for music that I was thinking that would make sense. Um, one of them being music that was like obviously about climate change. One was music written about or after environmental disasters. So music like Hurricane Betsy, which was the huge uh, hurricane that hit the Gulf Coast in 1965. Um, it's a song by Lightning Hopkins, who's a New Orleans artist. Um, and then also music that was inspired directly 
by the feel of Drowned World, which you'll find out later is very jungly. And then um, music inspired by Waterworld, which may or not be included. It's really up to Ted's liking. And I don't know if Atlantis by Donovan is his... Uh, is, is I'm Donovan. Oh, great. Well, great. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. And um, what were you thinking, Ted, for music that you were... Uh, well, there's a couple... Uh, you know, people think about climate change now, and occasionally they write songs about it. Um, so I think there are a couple... There have been a couple of great pop songs written about climate change within the last decade uh, that I definitely want to include. Uh, there's Chills by Trails and Ways, uh, which was released and then unreleased. And now it's not available anymore, but I still have it. <laughs> Can't do anything about it, Keith. So <laughs> it's going to get played. Uh, then there's uh, Anhony from An Anthony and the Johnsons. Uh, four Degrees um, from 2016, which is, you know, about way too much warming. <laughs> yes, too many degrees. Uh, from earlier this year, there's... <laughs> uh, from earlier this year, uh, there's Relax, 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 Relax <laughs> from by Cold Mailman. Also, Ice Bear by Growzone. Um, yeah, I didn't. I didn't really get specific uh -huh. about the music I was talking about, but um, yeah, you'll see. <laughs> I mean, you won't see it unless you have what's that synesthesia, but you will. Or you will hear it. Um, yeah, and before we get going, uh, I wanted to. <laughs> What'd you say? Say it again. I missed it. <laughs> That's I a Winamp visualization oh. joke. <laughs> yeah, if you have, if you have a synesthesia or Winamp. <laughs> Uh, you'll be able Thank to see you. everything we play. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I used to sit for hours and watching, like, the screen while I would watch when I'd listen to music. Um, Marissa, did you do that? Because you are a generation below us. <laughs> did you, yeah, did you <laughs> I, use my amp? <laughs> yeah. Maybe, like, I remember doing that, but it probably stopped when I was eight. Yeah, you there know? we go. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wanted to bring Mar Marissa on the show for two reasons. The first is that, well, for, for more than two. One, she's a very cool lady and she's very smart. Uh, two, she is younger than us. And so I feel like from when I've talked to people that are like in this Gen Z or whatever, they have this like much more real relationship to climate change. I mean, we all kind of grew up with it. I think Inconvenient Truth came out when we were in college. I remember seeing it and being like, I'm never having children. <laughs> yeah. um, and, but like, I feel like there's like, there's a real, I mean, now we all exist in this hopelessness, but Gen Zers have like grown up <laughs> in this sense of hopelessness. I think so. They have a different perspective. And Marissa like specifically studied um, climate change as a university student. And she currently works in a field that is around, the, I mean, hello she, Marissa. Just, she just works in a field? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I worked in a lot of fields actually. <laughs> Dare you. Um, yeah, Marissa, what do, you, do you have anything to say about yourself? <laughs> do I have anything to say for myself? Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, I am 24. I, like, I saw Inconvenient Truth, I guess, 
when I was a freshman in high school or, or, or maybe even earlier. Um, but like, yeah, I mean, climate change was just a reality growing up. Uh, I was like arranging to go to protests in DC when I was a sophomore in high school. Like it was just like a normal thing. Like, yeah, we're pretty, we're pretty screwed and we don't freaking do something. Right. That was like kind of the attitude of the people I grew up with. Um, but then, yeah, I went to, I went to school. I studied environmental studies, uh, wrote a thesis that focused on disaster resilience and agricultural communities because I've been farming for a while, um, since high school. And now I work in, in, in environmental field still. So it was not as much the science as the, the connecting with people and figuring out how we were going to be resilient because it felt less like there was something to reverse and more like something to adapt to. That's a, a lot of, um, I mean, we're not there yet, but N.K. Jemison talks about that and her reasoning behind writing um, the Broken Earth trilogy. There's not a lot of science behind it. She's talking about the people. Yeah. Sweet. Thank you, Marissa. Anytime. Let's play some music. When she arrives hey there, everyone. Sorry to butt in, but uh, if you're listening to this and wondering where all the wonderful music that we talk about is, well, that's because you're listening to this on a podcast, which means all that beautiful music that airs on the radio cannot, uh, because of licensing reasons, be on the podcast as well. But do not fret if you would like to hear the full show in its full unedited version. You can find us on our Mixcloud or for two weeks after broadcast at RadioFreeAmerica.com. And if that is too much information, just go to LastRefugePod.com. That's LastRefugePod.com. And you'll be able to see all the lovely ways that you can listen to our show and all the music and all the detailed notes about the music played. For now, sit back, relax, and listen to the wonderful sounds of Focus Bird. Hey, welcome back from that wonderful musical break and Ted's sultry voice right before we went into this. Oh, yeah. Um, (laughs) So sultry. So, yeah, very sultry. So we're talking about the drowned world, and we're talking about J.G. Ballard, and we're going to spin it over to DJ Cool Mojo. No, that's the people right before us. <laughs> that's what? Brian Brown, which is a great, which is an excellent jazz show. You guys should listen. Whoa, awesome. But, Wait, is um, that really the name of their show? Another guy. Yeah, uh, I think it's like the return of the Cool Mojo. Oh, wow. My Yeah, my the name of my show when I was a, a student, on uh, KCSB was Mixtape Mojo. That's because my name is Moses and my middle name is Joe. So Mojo was one of my many AKAs. Oh, anyway. So AKA Mojo, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the Drowned World, this, uh, I already forgot the year, 62. Great. Uh, book by J.G. Ballard. And it is, oh, so before the break, Marissa mentioned, uh, you said that uh, a lot of things you were working on were on, you know, how do how are we as a society going to adapt to all the changes that uh, 
you know, more or less are too late to prevent. Uh, and that is very much the focus of this book, uh, The Drowned World. It's about a world where the, the earth has gotten warmer, uh, but not due to human activities, just the sun had, did one of its crazy cycles and now the earth is hotter. So take that humanity, what are you gonna do about it? Uh, and uh, yeah, the focus of the book is the exploration of that effect on the human psyche. It's a very psychological book, which is kind of the theme for a lot of Ballard's work. Uh, you really explore the inner demons of every character. Uh, and in this one, the main character is this scientist guy and the whole, he's just basking. That's a book opens on him lying in the sun. And a lot of the book is an exploration of if the world just gets hotter like this and returns to kind of uh, this jungly Triassic uh, climate, then there, you know, what if there's this kind of psychological effect where our brains revert to more reptilian thinking? Uh, what if we just become more rep reptilian? And uh, in the book, there are like physical changes where you can withstand the heat better, but the mental changes are even weirder. Like you almost see the sun as, a, as your God, giver of your life, heater of your blood. Uh, and yeah, it relates it all also to there's some kind of wanting to return to the womb state of, of just going underneath some warm water and becoming an amniotic uh, little baby again. Uh, it's a strange book. <laughs> That's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> it's really good. And actually, it's been really hot in Philly this past week. And I was reading that book. And I tried to go onto the roof to read. And it was <laughs> so hot. And all I could think about was like, I'm just, um, first of all, what am I doing here? And second of all, I'm, I'm ready to revert. I'm ready to get that yeah. lizard state in. <laughs> um, yeah, there, he, oh yeah, he keeps having these crazy dreams about being back in the jungle and he feels all the characters end up feeling this like magnetic pull to go south, go towards the equator where it's even hotter. And the right. picture is, it's a pretty bleak picture of the outcome of humanity. It's like, well, we're just going to revert a little bit, but it'll, the heat will just kill us again. So, yeah, sounds good. Great book. What did you guys yeah, think from it? <laughs> uh... Yeah, reading it um, led me to do a little bit of research, aka <laughs> reading Wikipedia, <laughs> on J.G. Belly's biography, and uh, I found that he originally uh, studied medicine, started studying medicine with an intention to become a psychiatrist or psychologist, um, and yeah, the book is intensely kind of like mid-century Freudian, Jungian, yeah. mm -hmm. uh, and I, I searched, like I did a text search, and the book uses the word uterine like six <laughs> times, <laughs> womb, uh, four or six, a lot of amniotic, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, also the word silt more than I've ever seen it, uh, any book, Yeah, there's a whole times. part where they dredge um, the lagoon up. Um, but he was also, uh, when he was a child, uh, his parents were living in Shanghai in mm -hmm. like the uh, settlement there. And uh, he sort of became a prisoner of war uh, when the Japanese army occupied uh, China. Mm -hmm. um, and that book, the book, you know, it's about um, global warming, quite literally. but 
it's not about it in, I think, the way a book now would be. It's not about the human impact on the environment at all. Um, it's, to me, it's full of like post-colonial anxieties from the, from like the imperial core, uh, the sort of yeah. fear of becoming the colonized. Yeah. Um, and there, you know, we, we associate climate change with sort of a destruction of the living world. But in this book, the, um, you know, the warmth that just leads to uh, a profusion of life. Like there's suddenly giant iguanas and there's 200 foot tall uh, yeah. fern trees and there's jungles everywhere. Um, and the speak and it's also associated with, I think, kind of um, sort of a, a slow uh, sort of return of the global south to the north. Um, and yeah, this anxiety about the, the properly British characters slowly becoming um, yeah. sort of both colonial subjects and, you know, reverting to this kind of animalistic form. Um, I mean, that's, a, I think, an important note. So one of the things that this book is often compared to is Heart of Darkness. Um, and it's often told as like a retelling of Heart of Darkness, um, which it means that it also includes <laughs> a lot of the really n not great, uh, you know, black the gross racial savage. stereotypes. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Yeah, um. yeah. And so that's a disclaimer. So if, if any, just so that everybody knows, you know, the book is an interesting take on on what this world would look like, but it's not great in that in that sense, you know. And also, there's like one female character, and she's this like, uh, you know, damsel in distress. She has no attributes, no, basically, no. Except, <laughs> except that she continues to dress well and, like, do her makeup yes. as she retreats. Yeah, uh, and look beautiful, yeah, <laughs> and, like, have sex with the main character, <laughs> and that's about it, yeah. Um, um, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's, it's what really stood out to me above any of the actual, like, content of the plot is just the prose style. Um, mm -hmm. Like it's incredibly stylized prose in a way, and like to me the the kind of efflorescence of animal and plant life um, that is in the book really is mirrored by the style mm -hmm. um, and kind of puts you puts you into the location um, just with how like overwhelming and kind of almost um, uh, what's the word. Silty. <laughs> yep, there you go. It's very silty prose. Yeah. Uh, it is. It is hard to wade through it, to be honest, in my opinion. Yeah. I, yeah, it's sweltering prose. Sweltering, yeah. definitely. Yeah. Yeah, very uterine. <laughs> um, Do you, so, Ted, correct me if I'm wrong, but like, you spent a lot of time thinking about climate change, right? That's your field of study. <laughs> uh, kind of, yeah. Arguably. Do you, do you have any, besides my lay thought, do you have any more like 
like is this a possibility for the future in in some sense like the world that he's described uh so i mentioned the fact that the word silt appears <laughs> like over and over again uh yeah. which is so in this book um you know the earth gets hotter because of an it just a change in the sun which also increases the amount of radiation um hitting the planet which is uh creates a lot of uh mutation as well which is why you suddenly get yeah huge iguanas <laughs> and like albino alligators all the yeah. everywhere so in this future um the you know the increased temperature melts the antarctic and arctic ice sheets um but he also imagines it uh kind of washing like topsoil out into the earth which silts up everything and like it dams the oceans mm -hmm. so you get a smaller ocean but series of lagoons and jungles everywhere um i've never read anything that suggests <laughs> anything like that would happen <laughs> um, uh and also i'm pretty sure the temperatures the combination of temperature and humidity that he discusses in the books would kill the characters yeah, <laughs> yeah. instantly right like um, well, like a wet bulb temperature, which is like the temperature at 100% humidity, like 95 degrees with 100% humidity kills you after maybe an hour or less. Yeah. Uh, and the daytime, like noontime temperatures in London in this book are like 120 degrees and rising. Yeah. yeah. Which, and they're like, they go outside in that weather. Yeah. It's a, it's a weird thing in the book where he tr he's trying to say that there is a physical transformation happening too, like weird dormant uh, uh, ancient cellular uh, mechanisms are coming back to life inside your body as, a, as like a reaction to this. Yeah, that's what I was wondering. I wonder if that's like... Which is a very sci-fi part. Right, <laughs> right. Part. But oh yeah, yeah I mean, one I, of the other characters even coins the term for it, uh, archaeophysical response, something like that. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, there's this repeated ideal idea that being um, exposed to these Triassic conditions just take you um, back, like through your brain and into your spinal cord, mm -hmm. um, which for some reason makes the characters forget about basic survival needs and just yeah. makes them want to go south. Um, which yeah. Doesn't make any literal sense, but it's, I mean, it's the psychological work. It makes plenty of young a scientific work at all. <laughs> yes, it does. Yeah, yeah it's, yeah. Uh, I do have a I clip this of joke on air? It's the youngle. Oh yeah, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we haven't made a, a speculating on fiction joke in a while. That's Ted, right, That's anyway. on you. <laughs> We'll get there. It'll be there. Good time. Um, I can play this one really short clip of him talking about, like, the climate that he was writing in in the 50s. Not the literal climate, figurative climate. Mm -hmm. um, and, like, what he sees, his reasoning for the sci-fi that he writes. Um, I can play that quick clip so you can hear his Britishy voice. <laughs> Great. That's different than ours. The blueprint of the society we live in today was being laid down in the 1950s. First jet travel, consumer society, television, the media landscape, supermarkets, motorways, 
airport, the airport culture, all those things we take for granted and which shape our lives today were being defined for the first time in the 1950s. And I wanted to write about this world of change, threatened with nuclear war, with sort of science for the first time being seen in a rather sinister eye. People by the 50s had lost that optimistic confidence and the ability of, of science to fulfill all the dreams of mankind. Instead, you saw science about to fulfill all the nightmares of mankind. The prospect of nuclear war when was hours away. Yeah, that was, uh, that was JJ, J.G. Ballard in his own words. <laughs> Um, he doesn't necessarily, like, address, he talks about, like, science being sinister for the first time. That's, like, I think the first, mm -hmm. I don't necessarily agree with that, but, um, like, with agree with that whole idea that this is the first time people are realizing that science is, is bad. Yeah, there I are mean, plenty of perils. Yeah. Yeah, of technology type books, sci-fi. Yeah, and also we were just talking about, like, What's the guy that invented dynamite? I mean, there's people have thought about science being bad before. Uh, Nobel. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There you go. What's his name? <laughs> the, the Nobel Peace Prize guy. Um, uh, Arnold Peace. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. Oh, um, I'll say, I'll bring this up. I meant uh, to bring this up during our first episode, the Tales of the Future past uh but it fits in with this too is this short story written in 1909 called the machine stops uh and it's about a world that where humans have all live underground in isolated pods and they communicate through video screens uh and they never leave their pod and they only communicate through that way so it, it predicts this kind of you know we are all living, the thing we're living in right now, everyone's talking by Zoom. Uh, <laughs> but it's a, it's a great short story. I recommend looking that up, The Machine Stops. But it's, the, it's, toward the end of the story, it gets super moralistic about how mankind has created its own prison and deserves to die. Marissa, <laughs> <laughs> um, I know you, have, you didn't read Drown World, but <laughs> I'm gonna make the joke. Sometimes in this show, we speculate on <laughs> Anyway, do, do you have any thoughts? Anything that like we brought up that sparked something that you could? I know you were talking about Shanghai beforehand, but you don't have to. Um, <laughs> I mean, reflecting on on just that clip that you played, it's very much like a white guy colonizer being saying like this is the first time science has been insidious. <laughs> like so right. many people have been exploited for science before that, especially by the British, like yeah. in the places yeah. that he's been, in the places that he's writing about. And it's just like yeah. very much, you know, this is from his perspective. And yeah, I mean, eugenics was invented before yeah. 1950, <laughs> so I don't know. Yeah. 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 This might be a very early on, very early on, Two episodes ago, mm -hmm. <laughs> we, we, we talked about how if we mention a book, that means we want you to read it. But I would disclaimer this book. Oh, yeah. Personally. Sure. I think it's past its prime. 
Uh, and it was yeah. interesting to read, but I'll but read a listen, review of the book. Yeah, if you <laughs> listen to us, then you got enough. Yeah, I think you got enough. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I the st- like just the prose style, as I said, still comes through strongly. And it's an interesting document of its time, but it it's very racist. Um, yes. <laughs> so like, if you can deal with that and just kind of abstract yourself from the racism, then sure, read it. If you can't, then you don't have to. No. Um, space travel being the central kind of faith of 20th century science fiction. There's a scene in Drowned Earth where the main character is um, Drowned World. Say that again? Drowned World. Broken Earth is the other one. (laughs) Drowned World. Uh, A world that happens to be Earth, uh, (laughs) but also the womb. Uh, He's, the main character is exploring under the in the city under the water and he's in this planetarium uh, and he's in the planetarium dome and gets like fascinated by it mm-hmm. as like a womb. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then when, when that area of the city gets, gets um, drained, he suddenly, he's no longer, he now like all the magic of it has been taken away mm-hmm. and it now like disturbs him and disgusts him. And it's like no longer the future. Um, and yeah. it's like in the book, it keeps coming up. Like it's represented as a reversion to the past, but the character, the main character often also is often talking about like needing to continue into the future. Like his weird struggle mm-hmm. to go south and die mm-hmm. is like, he understands <laughs> it as going into the future. And it's that like, um, like disillusionment with the planetarium womb, kind of seems like it's very early on, um, kind of representing like a disillusionment with this idea of creating the future in the stars. Um, right. Yeah. I mean, I don't. J.G. Ballard's stuff is very rooted in on Earth. He doesn't. He's not a sci-fi writer that's like talking about planets and stars and all that goodness yeah most of the time uh, if anybody's familiar with crash that's a <laughs> yeah that's a, that's a book about people getting uh, erotically obsessed with car crashes very yeah but that's not necessarily sci-fi but that is you know that's his stuff that's him right that's, there yeah i think that that one falls under psychological horror that one is tough to get through yeah uh, yeah it was later adapted into a film which i believe uh, won the oscar for best picture um, <laughs> that's, incorrect, Ted. That's the bad crash. <laughs> I do like the idea that our re- that our listeners would believe that. <laughs> that's bad, a, <laughs> just check Wikipedia. <laughs> yeah, crash one best picture. <laughs> Good old Cronenberg. Yeah, he wrote another also, book 
called uh, Concrete Island about a guy who living in London and then he, he wipes out his car on a freeway interchange and falls into this like patch of dirt that's under six uh, freeways, highways. Uh, and at some point he just resigns himself to his fate. He says, no one's ever going to find me. So I live here now on this patch of dirt. Uh, and that's, that's the book? I highly I mean, recommend I'll... that one. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's one character and there's no way that he can be racist. <laughs> I'm sure, no, he, you know, he's not a good guy, but it's another, some great vivid prose about being, adapting to your situation, being trapped in a little patch of dirt. Yeah. I mean, this is probably not going to be the first time that we talk about how, like, a lot of sci-fi can be pretty problematic. So, oh, sure. <laughs> my husband just audibly laughed. I don't know if anybody <laughs> heard that. <laughs> um, yeah, maybe this is a good time to music break, and uh, when we come back, we'll be talking about some sci-fi that is not problematic. <laughs> Ooh, uh-oh, uh-oh. We'll see. We'll see. Of size, a song sparrow trumpets, a bee fat with afternoon warmth bumps up against a purple petal splayed out in sagging and furrow. Welcome back from that lovely musical break. Ted was playing bass the entire time throughout. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just bobbing his head. As is my want. Yeah. So let's, uh, let's move into the fifth season, which is a book written in 2015. It's the first in a trilogy of the Broken Earth trilogy, and it's written by a woman named N.K. Jemison, who, oddly enough, also has, I think she has a master's in education and has like a counseling, uh, her, her life before she actually became a, a writer that could make a living off of writing, which was fairly recently, was, um, was as a counselor in in New York City. Hmm. So I'm not, I'm not saying she, she's sim similar to J.G. Ballard. I'm just saying that <laughs> they both, <laughs> I think the way people think are important to their writing. Um, should I back cover synopsis this or would somebody like to? Oh, I'll do it. All right. Okay. This is the way the world ends again. Three terrible things happen in a single day. As soon, a woman living an ordinary life in a small town comes home to find that her husband has brutally murdered their son and kidnapped their daughter. Meanwhile, mighty Sanze, the world's spanning empire, whose innovations have been civilization's bedrock for a thousand years, collapses as most of its citizens are murdered to serve a madman's vengeance. And worst of all, across the heart of the vast continent known as the stillness, the great red rift has been torn into the heart of the earth, spewing ash enough to darken the sky for years or centuries. So <laughs> Broken Earth is this world uh, set called the stillness. And the whole concept behind it is that every unpredictable amount of years, uh, there's a fifth season. And it's this great season of a great environmental collapse where kind of civilization has to restart again. Specifically so the, like seismic upheaval. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and in this world, there's a kind of magic where certain people can commune with uh, the energy of the earth and 
either calm the earthquakes down or make them worse. Yes, and um, a lot of people see this book as a, as a climate change book, which was not the author's intention. So she, she originally wrote that, I'm often at a loss for what to say when readers state the broken earth books are about climate change. I get why people would think so, but they're not. The characters face disaster, sure, but it's people. The disaster is people. Climate change is also a people disaster, but we don't generally think of it as such. We focus on the symptoms, floods, powerful storms, and not the systems, capitalism, bigotry. The uh, broken earth is about the latter. The former is just the backdrop. But that yeah. is, that's just her saying it is about climate change. <laughs> that's, yeah, I think exactly. that's her... I think that's her saying, like, because so many people have told me it's about climate change, <laughs> let me figure out how it is about climate change, maybe. Well, I mean, I think, I mean, just in the way that the drowned world is literally about global warming, but not about global warming as a political problem as we think about it now. Um, fifth season is not about literal global warming, although it is about a cl changed climate but it very much is about the way we think about climate change as a political problem and like over-exploitation, mm -hmm. um, et cetera. Yeah, and I think she actually wasn't, was so, was inspired by, not, not inspired is a bad word, but after Ferguson, she, she, she used that as a lot of her inspiration behind writing this book. Do we want to have uh, Marissa uh, share her reflections on the book since not, yes. just have, not just have us talk? Yeah. Because I got things to say. Um, I think it's, yeah, I think it's really interesting that she doesn't think of it as a climate change book because all of the things that she describes the book being about, I would say, are what climate change is about. This like, it's, not what's broken in in their world is like this missed connection with uh with the earth and then also the othering of people and the exploitation of of people and resources and things like that and that's exactly like what what i've always viewed climate change as being as this broken connection with like seeing something as a whole and and our over exploitation of of people and othering and mm -hmm. uh, so uh, yeah I would say it's absolutely a climate change book um, yeah. although it did take me a while to shift my mind out of thinking about our world and our climate in order to get into that headspace. I'll add yeah, that I mean, the, it's an... the later books kind of make that connection even stronger like they yeah, they kind of spell out how the whole disaster is direct, a direct consequence of a specific uh, race of people being oppressed and exploited in brutal ways. Mm -hmm. How do you say their name? I don't remember. Or, or, no? Orogenes? Um, is that it? I don't know. Origin. Origin. Yeah, as, as a reader, you have the, oh, this is Ursula K. Le Guin, this will quote from her. As a reader, yeah. you have the right to pronounce any name however you want. Perfect. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, like, like Le Guin, um, like a lot of Le Guin works, this, 
Bergenoth sort of at first seems like more of a fantasy work. And then especially in the sequels, the like science fiction-y background um, comes, gets elaborated a bit. But, uh, you know, it's a world in with magic, but uh, yeah. magic is very much like an exploitation of life and previous life in a way that intentional or not is very much like a a metaphor for fossil fuel um and other like yeah exploitation of energy sources yeah i was trying to convince brendan to read it because it's a really good book it's and mm -hmm. it's you know easy to get through and he was like is it fantasy i was like <laughs> it's there's kind of magic. It's not really magic. Nobody talks about it as magic. Like, you'll like it. Leave me alone. <laughs> yeah. Leave me alone. Yeah, I mean, just... <laughs> <laughs> in the same way that, like, beyond any, like, content or themes, the Drowned World is just stylistically very well written. Like, the Broken Earth trilogy is gripping. Like, it's a page turner. It um, is. Yeah. yeah. yeah it's stylistically books. really interesting, the way she wrote it. Um, yeah, it's, like, narratively... Um, uh, experimental like a lot of it is, is in second person yeah <laughs> yeah um ted i know you mentioned that you that you had some thoughts oh yeah i had thoughts <laughs> uh well another another interesting comparison to drowned world i think is like they're both very psychological works but um whereas for ballard it's about like you know childhood and the womb and it's archetypes and like ancient um brainstem stuff yeah. jemson it's really all about trauma um in a way that reflects like how central the mm. concept of trauma is to a lot of discourse right sure. now um yeah. even more so now than five years ago uh, when she started writing the books yeah um, also uh just a cursory very surface level observation, but I was not expecting the sex on either of those books. And there was a lot, there was a lot, there's a lot of, <laughs> these guys really like writing about sex. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a horny trilogy. <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> this is unrelated, but you know, I read, uh, like as growing up, I, science fiction was most of what I read. And so I went deep into every series I could find and here's there's a real dirty old man phenomenon in science fiction like the first few books are huge hits so dune in 2001 in particular the later books in the series are unforgivably horny <laughs> it's like come on yeah i mean maybe nk jemison was just like yeah women can write this too <laughs> uh yeah i think those were i was yeah i think her her books were more artfully written than Three, <laughs> obviously Clark's 3001 oh man anyway that's a, don't read that one is what I'm trying to say I think I think that fifth season was really fascinating in like in all of that in in talking about sex because so much of it also was about reproductive labor yeah the, like the entire book yeah. is about reproducing people uh as labor sources yeah for in order to uphold an empire um and so like yeah. the ability to reclaim like carnal desires within a system where you're also being exploited by like 
this act of sex. Like she so frequently talks about like, do we call it making love? It's not really making love. It's like our duty that I have to do because it's my job. Because mm-hmm. if I don't have to do it with you, I have to do it with someone else. Right. Right. But even when she does escape, spoiler alert, maybe not such a spoiler alert. It's not, whatever. Yeah, that didn't tell me anything. Great, <laughs> good. <laughs> even when she does escape, there's, she's still at, she's still producing a child for somebody else now. Did you guys, you pick up on that? Like she wasn't, you know, she, she went from producing a child for the fulcrum to producing a child for this weird pirate world that was, you know, asking for it. Yeah, I mean, it's still exploitation of, of like, yeah, this power that she has, no matter who she is with, and her like constantly reinventing herself to kind of try to escape that. I feel like also, I feel like finally, when she's able to do it on her own terms, that like the child she has is stolen in that way. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Should I complain now? Yes, go ahead, Ted. Let's hear your complaint. You uh, heterosexual <laughs> white man. This better be about uh, the sexy pirate world not being sexy enough. Uh, I have no complaints about the sexy pirate world. Um, I'll try to do this without spoilers. Yeah. Um, and as I said, like it's a riveting trilogy and my dissatisfactions with it really only came at the end, at the conclusion. In the I third think, book? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think throughout the series, I think ultimately she basically collapses exploitation in the te- like in a analytical sense with exploitation in a normative sense. Mm-hmm. Like it's not just about like taking too much, like overexploiting things and people. In by the end of the book, it seems like there's actually no good way to like exploit an energy source or anything like in like in a Le Guin book there's you know sort of a Taoist like there's a good way to go with it um and by the end of the Broken Earth trilogy there's like no nobody should use any energy to do anything (laughs) all um like irredeemably um kind of uh, you know (laughs) Mm-hmm. Whatever word I'm looking for right now, silty. Um, silty. <laughs> it's all too silty. <laughs> yeah, but um, uh, like tarnished. Yeah, um, okay. in a way that makes it. Uh, you you know it's yeah. There's like there, human cost to every every usage mm-hmm. of that energy, and a cost to the earth. But you, yeah. in, it's in a way that you you don't have a reason to care that the earth is being exploited. Um, mm-hmm. Like so the, at the end, you get the idea that the Earth is a jerk. Exactly. That. I mean, I don't know how to say this without being a spo- without kind of spoiling it. But <laughs> if you make the Earth itself a character, like, don't uh... make the Earth a jerk. Yeah. <laughs> so she. I read. I was looking for. I couldn't find anything really good, any good soundbite. But I read that. I heard her say that she. She doesn't think Father Earth is a jerk. Mm-hmm. But, like, if you're a reader and everybody's interpreting it as a jerk, then maybe he's a jerk. <laughs> I don't know. But, <laughs> uh, but I mean, I, like we were like we were talking with Octavia Butler um, and uh, Earthseed. You know, th- this may just be like 
like a black woman writer being just having a more pessimistic um, view of the world. Yeah, um, yeah I mean, that's, <laughs> I get it. I think that comes out like, and you see it already in Alabaster, like you see these like different, different feelings that they're having of being like, why would I, I, I just want to find my peace and I want to sit here and I want to be in it. And I don't want to feel like it's not my job to take on this world and cyanides being there like no this is not this is not okay it's very much like someone who's like 20 and hasn't had to experience it for 20 additional years um, right of being beat down or even knowing exactly to the extent that it's devastating but i think you really do see like the young activist in this and then the person who's who's been beat down by a system who's like mm-hmm. still clearly fighting and doing a lot of damage to his oppressors, but also. All the music that you've been hearing throughout this episode is by the amazing Focus Bird, and if you really enjoy it and want to hear more check out our Bandcamp. just go to Bandcamp, <laughs> focus bird i don't know how to do it just google Bandcamp, focus bird we'll figure it out An article that we read, Opre New Le Deluge. Opre New Le Deluge by Jerry Canavan, written in 2013. Jerry Canavan is also an Octavia Butler scholar. Um, oh, is he really? And yeah, and he edited a, um, a book called Green Planets Ecology and Science Fiction, which I can recommend. Uh, yeah, talks about. It had a lot of essays on climate fiction and like the environment in science fiction. Yeah, I mean, this article was really cool. It was essentially looking at, you know, climate fiction and how it's written about. And it's not a very long article. So definitely recommend he, it. Uh, back to the theme of how uh, both Drowned World and Broken Earth are psychological works. He talks about the pathetic fallacy in, yeah. in, liter- in literature and like literary... Uh, criticism, like this idea that you shouldn't have the environment reflect um, the inner world of the character. Like if the character is upset, you don't have it suddenly be stormy outside. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like a, a no-go stylistically now, even though it's in Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's, it's absolutely what's happening in the drowned world. Um, where you know it's hot and now everybody's a reptile inside their brain (laughs) um and in the broken earth um the you know upset people upset orogenies or (laughs) however we're saying it it's pronounced Um, hermione yeah yeah, like their their inner turmoil can turn into earthquakes um right yeah so a lot of the essay is about how you can't really um, 
represent climate change well without breaking the pathetic fallacy. What do you think of the article, Marissa? Yeah, I mean, I thought it was really, yeah. The, the fact that we actually do impact the weather, like in a very broad sense, mm. um, not so much through emotions, but like how we represent ourselves in the world, like makes it not a fallacy, it just makes it a fact that, that like we've had this impact. Um, but there's so many, there's so many like hi-fi books I've read that are just like the storms brewing and that's, they're feeding into each other, the characters, feelings, and the storm that's coming are, are there together. And the storm is often like something revolutionary, something in any other sense of like a big change that needs to come or Mm -hmm. like all of this, like the deluge washes everything clean. Um, And so I mean, there's not, mm, oh, go ahead. ahead. There's not a lot of subtlety in sci-fi. Do you know what I mean? Like, (laughs) so if you need to, you gotta use the weather, use it, man. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I did, it's not necessarily his quote, but he was quoting this guy, Timothy Morton. Um, He says, global warming is like a very slow nuclear explosion that nobody even notices is happening. That's the horrifying thing about it. It's like my childhood nightmares come true even before I was born. Um, And I just, that kind of stuck with me. If we're talking about the psychological effects of climate change or, you know, writers talking about, you know, like N.K. Jemisin having this really like not optimistic view of the world and how could you have these optimistic view of the world if like you're in it <laughs> you're in it and you're in it forever um, there's this book uh by rob nixon called slow violence that's like all about nonfiction, different stories of how how climate and ecological degra- degradation are just these really slow forms of violence that it's difficult to find ways to care about mm-hmm. because we're so trained to to look at things like very quickly look at the the hurricanes but drawing the connections between the hurricanes between the droughts between mm-hmm. all of these other things just like it getting really warm here in Philadelphia things like that becomes difficult to care about um, yeah there's yeah there's another quote and this is the last quote I have from this article but um, the op- the pop the ap- Jesus everyone's gonna hate me okay <laughs> the apocalypse okay <laughs> the apocalypse is thereby transformed into a memory an event which is yet to come but which has also somehow paradoxically already happened behind the endless neurotic reversal of the debate over whether or not climate change is real lurks the much more depressed sense that it doesn't even matter either way even in the increasingly unlikely event there's time we still won't act to save ourselves. Three months after Hurricane Sandy, eight years after Hurricane Katrina, 25 years after James Hansen testified before Congress, 40 years after the development of a scientific consensus around global warming in the 1970s, 70 years after climate models in the 1950s first began to point to the problem, 107 years after Svante Arrhenius first modeled the greenhouse effect, in 1896, we still sit and wait to see what happens. It's as if we've been practicing the end of everything for so long, we're relieved, even exhilarated, to see it finally becoming real. The market has spoken and the media and the voters will continue to do nothing, eagerly surrender to our collective death drive, freely author our own collapse. 
Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's in bleak, bleak reading. I'll, yeah. I'll be trying to make this connection of, uh, uh, yeah, the, that this article starts out, or this essay starts out by saying how unfashionable it is to have, in, li in literature, have the environment reflect uh, the character because it's unfashionable now to think of a world that cares about us. Like, obviously, we're all scientific people now. We know that there's no grand you know, nature design that uh, includes human feeling and should reflect, you know, us. Uh, and so the most fashionable thing in this sense is to have an uncaring universe, because why should it care? We're just humans. Uh, and there should be, you know, yeah, there should, they should, uh, the outside world should operate independently from the inside world. And the two books we've been talking about, uh, so in the drowned world, we have a totally one-way relationship of the outside world completely driving our inside emotions. And then in the broken earth, we have the inside world uh, materializing in the outside world, like completely taking control of the earth. And, uh, and yeah, in reality, the reality of climate change is it's, it's the two of those things. Like there is no one-sided, one-way relationship. Uh, and I wanted to relate this to another uh, essay that, or article that Ted sent by Mike Davis, which is really about the history of geology in the 1800s. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, yeah, it took a long time. Like the scientific consensus for a long time was just, you know, the earth that's has like been this, this. The coming desert? Is that the one you're talking about? Yeah. Uh, yeah, the one that's all about Kropotkin. Yeah, yeah. And how the consensus was that the earth was pretty much in a steady state, equilibrium forever. Right. Uh, and, and Kropotkin and then Arrhenius kind of figured out that, well, there have been ice ages or there have been these dr dramatic sh shifts in the geological, you know, earthscape. Mm -hmm. uh, and so just accepting or just being able to recount historically uh, the geological changes that the earth has gone through on its own was a huge enough, like, you know, it took a hundred years for scientific consensus to sell around that. Uh, and now it's scientific consensus pretty much around the anthropological effects on the environment is is there but there's still no very little you know political action about it and it's right. that's the depressing part i feel <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh yeah an, in, an interesting uh detail in that mike davis piece that um connects to our science fiction theme um is that kropotkin's kropotkin based on his observations in sort of eastern russia and central asia uh, he developed this theory of progressive um uh eridization no. yeah desiccation or yeah, yeah desiccation yeah. um that like central asia and most of eurasia was continually getting drier since the last ice age mm -hmm. um and percival lowell who started lowell observatory um heard about this idea and yeah. when he started um uh we built this observatory and observed Mars, uh, there was this idea that people were observing canals on Mars. Yeah. Um, and this was taken to be proof um, that there was a civilization on Mars and that they had built these canals because Mars was getting progressively drier, right. uh, which um, sort of created like a, a popular Mars craze, <laughs> which influenced uh, the writing of H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds. Mm -hmm. um, so you have climate science, you have like developing ideas and debates within climate science, influencing science fiction pretty early on. Mm -hmm. 
yeah, take that, J.G. Ballard with 1950s <laughs> being the... <laughs> Correct me if I'm wrong, but Lowell then goes, got some pretty weird... Oh, yeah, the other, yeah, the other thing <laughs> yeah. is a lot of the um, people who were partisans of progressive uh, desiccation theory were also scientific racists. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But the whole idea that like you you could never a big civilization couldn't be created in a hot climate or something like that was yeah they weird. they you tried to relate barometric pressure to intelligence and had people like yeah. take tests under different humidity conditions yeah and, it's an interesting oh, article for sure I mean anything yeah. written by Mike Davis is worth reading period <laughs> um, I did actually look him up because I had never read anything and I looked him up on Wikipedia and. There is a lot of infighting in the academic world around around Mike Davis. A lot of scholarly controversy. <laughs> um, he's also uh, a lot of a lot of California people that we talk about. He's also he's from Southern California. Yes, yeah, that other piece about the California wildfires was really striking. Yeah, he's been writing great pieces on California fires since the early 90s. Uh, he wrote City of Quartz, which is this great um, critical history of Los Angeles um, from the early 90s, I believe, earlier mid 90s. Mm -hmm. going to pivot into the world of moving pictures. <laughs> Movies. <laughs> Movies. So, so just like there is a significant amount of climate, clylit, which is... <laughs> is that really on really, the Wikipedia? It's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's Marissa texted me that term, just I so fi. you guys are aware. Yeah, cli-fi. Oh, cli-fi. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Because that is not an appropriate term. Um, <laughs> anyway, cli-fi. There's a lot of cli-fi. There's also a lot of, um, there's a lot of really great movies from the 1980s with, into the 1990s all about climate change, sort of. <laughs> Ted, are you, do you have sound? think so. Oh, oh yeah. Okay, I'm, I'm just giggling silently, oh, okay. as is my want. <laughs> what do you think about Waterworld? <laughs> yeah, let's start with, let's start with Waterworld, because I think a lot of our listeners have, have probably seen it. Huge movie, or they've at least been on the ride. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> For those of you that haven't seen it, it's 1995. It's a post-apocalyptic action film. Okay. Directed by Kevin Reynolds. But, ladies and gentlemen, it stars Kevin Costner and 
apparently he was such a backseat director that at the end of the filming of the film, Kevin Reynolds is like, I'm out. I can't do this anymore. <laughs> and then Kevin Costner just took over the direction of it. Ooh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh, I read up a lot about Waterworld. <laughs> um, you know, it's set in a distant future. <clears throat> I have a lot of thoughts about this distant future that they've created where the polar ice cops have melted and there's literally no land. There's no land <laughs> on Earth at all. And that seems highly unlikely. <laughs> Turns out there was just more ice up there than we thought. <laughs> um... Yeah, and the, Kevin Costner plays this. It doesn't. He doesn't have a name. It's called the Mariner. He's a drifter, sails the earth in a in a really cool boat. Mm-hmm. And at the time of the making of this film, it was the most expensive movie ever made, and you can see why. Yeah, it's. Um, I mean, the amount of like, I mean, they were producing it on the ocean the whole time, and building these like sets of ocean cities it's i mean yeah the sets are an impressive accomplishment uh it's pretty well shot it's known as like a huge flop uh but it didn't actually officially lose money even it was just a big production that wasn't as successful as i guess it was expected to be and also people saw it and just thought well what did I just see? Um, <laughs> this guy had gills. What are they trying to tell me about this? <laughs> um, we, we were talking earlier about the difference um, between like being a Zoomer or a millennial. Um, sorry for using the Z word. Um, and like, yeah, Zoomers grew up just with climate change as a pervasive reality. Whereas I think we grew up with like that pop 90s environmentalism of like Captain Planet and everybody's recycling now and like (laughs) what can you do to help save uh help save the earth and Waterworld is I think kind of the doc I don't know it's one of the leading documents of that like 90s pop environmentalism I think um not that it necessarily has a very clear environmental message but yeah, I mean the, see, the bad guys are on a big oil tanker yeah oh but, yes it's, it's literally is, the Exxon Valdez yeah, exactly <laughs> uh, yeah and they they pray to, to a Captain Joe something something I forgot his name and he's he's literally was the captain of the Exxon Valdez when it, it it's it's pretty clear what they're trying to say <laughs> Smokers, yeah. they, they love cigarettes. Mm-hmm. Throw that in there. Yeah, the villain the villains are like use use fossil fuels and are based in the Exxon Valdez. And yeah. Um, yeah. Yes. It's it's pretty clear what the message is <laughs> at some point, sort of. I don't know. <laughs> I mean in a way it's it has a lot of the broad themes that Mad Max Fury Road. Uh, uses much, much, much more successfully. Um, I mean, it, it's, it, it, it is, that, that's why the writers wrote. The, after Mad Max came out, the writers were like, how do we make a Mad Max ripoff? And then they wrote Waterworld. <laughs> so if it's similar to Mad Max, it's because it's supposed to be. <laughs> I mean, I consider Waterworld a ripoff of Solar Babies, but... <laughs> So, well, that's a good transition to another wonderful film. 
Ted, do you want to tell us about Solar Babies? Yeah, Solar Babies is a film from, I believe, 1986, um, produced by Mel Brooks and yep. Brooks Film. Um, it's set in a world where basically all the water in the world is behind, is like behind this dam um, and is managed by an evil like, corporate state. The Protectorate. Um, the Protectorate. And for some reason, they like have a school for orphans that has rollerblading teams. They play like this weird rollerblading sport. That yeah, seems to be most it's of what they do. Like <laughs> lacrosse mixed with hockey. Yeah. Which uh, has connect. If we're trying to figure out similarities, I would say those like weird indoctrinating orphanage villains are like the fulcrum <laughs> in, right. in some sense. <laughs> yeah, I think N.K. Jemison should have uh, like acknowledged the influence of Solar Babies more than she has up to this point. Um, but uh, I don't know, the kid, the, like the rollerblading kids discover a psychic orb that um, through a convoluted series of events <laughs> yeah, it's an orb named Bodai, uh, which is spelled like Bodhi, but pronounced Bodai. And the one black character is constantly corrected for saying it incorrectly. <laughs> like, what? Why? <laughs> um, and you could tell there's like weird humor that like Mel, because it's not supposed to be a Mel Brooks film, right? But there's weird moments where you're like, Mel Brooks, did you like show up on set and throw out some jokes to <laughs> <with> people? <laughs> Uh, so, yeah, Bodai eventually leads them on a series of adventures, including through Tire Town, which is <laughs> a city whose economy seems to be based on used tires and is also built out of used tires, uh, which really, I mean, they built that set. It uh, <laughs> rivals those of Waterworld. Uh, so, yeah, go ahead. well, Mel Brooks did say that he never recouped the costs on oh, Solar yeah. Babies. <laughs> Solar Babies is the failure that people think Waterworld was. Yeah. Uh, but eventually they blow up the dam. Um, yes, and then all the waters. Well, with the help of Bodai. There's, yeah, some, the there's Bodai. alien forces that help bring Yeah, he's back. from space, and yeah. then he goes back to space. And he's um, just a glowing ball, in case anybody's wondering. <laughs> um, yeah, then the water comes back. I guess the protect. I guess it's in some sense an anti-capitalist story or something. I don't know. The protectorate is trying to hoard the water. The protective intentionally took all the water and put it in a dam so that people have to pay for it. Maybe I don't know. They're trying. They're really scared of Bodai. I mean, the bottom yeah. line is if if you're gonna watch any post-apocalyptic rollerblading movie, <laughs> you want to watch Solar Babies. Um, can I ask you, Marissa, to talk a little bit about your experience, like, in farming, climate change, and some real-world effects? Yeah. Um, yeah, so, like, like I said, I was focusing on adaptation, things like this. Um, so... I wrote a thesis where my the town I grew up in small town in the south, the counties around it uh, had a significant amount of agriculture as their economy. Um, 
but experienced a year of just extreme drought followed by a year of just absolutely extreme flooding. Uh, and so I, I spent a lot of time talking to people about how they were how they were dealing with this, how they're thinking about climate change, if they were thinking about climate change, and like what what strategies they were using to overcome everything um, and move forward with this idea that that the individual doesn't really have the ability to change the scope of our climate, but we do have more power to adapt in our circumstances depending mm -hmm. on what we have available to us. Um, and, and these things where it was like the people who were getting together and creating communes and addressing things and they had this like uh, social capital that they were pulling on, those were the people who were able to adapt and like pulling that in from, from uh, fifth season, it was very interesting to see these small like communes that were developing that we see throughout the book where they're they're not trying to change the world as it is. They're just trying to find their little their piece of dirt where they can they can survive and they can adapt with the circumstances they have and how they're bucking the social fabric within their own community, but not changing anything on a really large scale. Um, right. And I see that just all the time, like in, in how people are adapting here now is what can we do within our community? Because it's hard to think about something as vast as climate change, because this whole thing of like billions and millions, there's so much out there. Like how could right. you ever think that we're going to change something that big? But, right. but right. once you start building all these small communities, what actually can you do? Yeah, and in the fifth season, that community adaptation takes the shape of like a rigid cast structure. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and and closed off communities, essentially, where if if you are not useful, you're rejected. I did think of uh, one thing to say about a film, which is uh, the Beasts of the Southern Wild from mm -hmm. 2012 uh, is another work where that pathetic fallacy is kind of um, violated or transcended because the the main character who narrates it, uh, played by Kovan Janae Wallace, um, is constantly, like she's a child and uh, in her, her like personal belief system, like um, catastrophic changes in the world are very much connected to like the, the personal. Um, yeah. And if there's like one thing wrong, like it can have like a huge um, shockwave effect. Um, yeah, that's a beautiful film. Cool. So yeah, I think I think if uh, if there's one conclusion we've come to uh, <laughs> from this episode, it's that like violating the pathetic fallacy is um, <laughs> a common thread throughout climate works. Yeah, Spe the, the speculative marker. works. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. Hi -fi. <laughs> Not Clylit. Not that. <laughs> All right. Um, well, so if you if you guys have any thoughts on our show, want to correct us, <laughs> please feel free to email us at the last refuge of the incompetent. Um, at gmail.com. Oh yeah. 
at netscape.gear. AOL <laughs> <laughs> keyword, last refuge. Um, yeah. Thanks for listening. And I want to plug um, uh, a really good show that's back on KCSB called um, A Ribbon Around a Bomb. It's uh, on Fridays, I believe. Uh, and it's by it's Aaron Isor, and I think it's at 10, your time, people listening to me now. <laughs> uh, yeah, 10 a.m. Yeah, yeah, it's really good. It's really, really, really beautiful, awesome music. It's all um, female or um, uh, genderqueer or trans um, fronted post-punk. Really good. It's very. She 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 knows her stuff and the stuff. There's a lot of stuff played from all over the world. Okay. Yeah. Uh, great. We'll see you later, incompetiers. Science fiction.